The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. If you're able, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to ask you to turn to three passages this morning. And I'm going to start with two of them. Micah 5.2. It was already read at the Advent reading, but I would ask that you go there again. Micah 5.2. And then over to Luke 1. We'll do both of those. Would you look with me in Micah 5, verse 2. Written hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. Centuries before this, the prophet declared. But you, O Bethlehem... Ephrathah, that is a very specific Bethlehem in a place surrounding called Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. It was not considered a significant town as it resided in the region apportioned to the tribe of Judah. From you, that is Bethlehem, shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. So we are told in the Bible that the scepter shall not leave the tribe of Judah. Now you know where the bearer of that scepter will come from. What town in the tribe of Judah? Bethlehem. Whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. It prophesied all the way back to Genesis 3.15 with 60 plus prophecies that will be fulfilled that night. In Bethlehem, would you then go with me to Luke one, Luke one. Now, Luke two records this event for us, but Luke one is important before we get to Luke two. Would you look with me in this prologue that Luke gives to the gospel of Luke? Verse one, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed along, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. The grass withers, the flower fades, God's word abides forever. By his grace and mercy, may his word be preached for you. Please be seated. If you'd like to, you can go ahead and turn on over to Luke 2, just a page or so away in your Bibles. Uh, We'll be there to look a little closer at that. May I take just a moment to let you know what's happening. What's happening is in the Advent season, I do an Advent series of sermons to help us look at the coming of Christ, the birth of Christ, and the doctrinal themes that are attached to it. Well, this year, I chose to go to passages of Scripture related to this theme, and that is the kings of Christmas. Now, some of you, very smartly and brilliantly, are way ahead of me, and I know in your mind you're saying, Aha, Christ Sunday, I know who he's going to be preaching about. Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. You're right. 
So no surprise on Christ Sunday. And some of you are probably ahead of me and saying, well, I know the fourth Sunday of Advent. I know what he's going to do. He is going to um, he is going to uh, give us those three regal representative from the kings of the east. And uh, even though we don't know whether it was three or not, we just think it might be. But we do know it was plural, two or more. That's what he's going to do then. And you're right. But what am I going to do the third Sunday of Advent? Well, there's another king in the nativity account that we want to look at. His name was King Herod the Great. We're going to take a look at him. Then we're going to take a look today at a big time king, Caesar Augustus, who sits as king of Roman and over the entire civilized world at the time. But how are we going to get there? We're going to get there by taking a look at the Gospel of Luke, which gives us our basic information about him in the context of the birth of Christ. Now, you can go to a lot of extra biblical historical narratives to learn things about him, which I've done. And um, because he is a real Caesar, a real king who really ruled in the days that Jesus uh, was brought forth to be born of a virgin. He really did during that time. And um, and Luke records him. Now, Luke is interesting, this author that we're taking a look at Luke two. And by the way, we're going to take just a brief look at Luke three as well. But um, one of the things that Luke now we know, Luke is a companion of Paul, right? Actually, Luke likely the extra biblical. We've got a lot of history about Luke that's available outside the Bible from various disciples of people who were discipled by the disciples of Paul. We've got a lot of information. For instance, we know he was from Antioch. We know that he was educated as a doctor. We know that he was um, a companion of the Apostle Paul in his from his second missionary journey on. We know he died at age 84, a peaceful death uh, in his home. And um, and so unlike a lot of the followers of Jesus in that time, he died a peaceful death. And uh, we know those things about him. We also know he was not only a companion to Paul, he was a noteworthy, faithful companion. Doesn't it pull at your heart when you read the last thing Paul writes when he's under his second Roman imprisonment? Uh, the the cistern that they dug out for those who were facing capital punishment, it's still there today. You can go down into that dank, cold cistern that was served as his final cell before he died. And you can hear you can feel what he's saying as you read Second Timothy, his last epistle. Bring me the cloak. I'm cold. Bring me the writings, the sacred parchments, the scripture. Send people to me. I've been deserted by all except only Luke is with me. He was courageous, faithful companion. He was not only a medical missionary, which would be very important for Paul, wouldn't it? Remember, Paul not only had afflictions that he refers to, eye afflictions and a thorn in the flesh, but there were numerous times that Paul would need a doctor after the city officials finished with him, with the beatings he took, the whips that he took, the stoning that he took. And there would be the, the, the time he got bit by a snake. I mean, he would need a doctor on multiple occasions. So he is not only a, he's a medical missionary. 
missionary, but he was also a leader who Paul would leave behind in churches to help churches till they could get elders. And then he was such as Philippi. And beyond that, the, he was really interesting uh, in, um, in, as a author and writer. In fact, if you characterize him, he's not, he writes two books of your Bible. He writes Luke and he writes Acts. And he writes both of them to Theophilus, who we don't know for sure who he is. But we do know he wrote these books to him. The first is a 33-year compilation, a compilation of the 33 years of the life, of the birth, life, and ministry of Jesus. But it's not an agiography. It's a real historical biography. And the same thing he does with what Jesus continues to do and teach through the body of Christ, the church, that, and the book of Acts also covers 33 years. So he wrote those two volumes. I happen to be of the opinion he wrote a third volume. I believe he was the chief author of the book of Hebrews, but that's purely my speculation. But we do know he wrote Luke and he wrote Acts, and we do know something about his writing. It wasn't haphazard. He first of all lets you know, I know I'm not the first one to write about the life and ministry of Jesus. See, already, when he, when he produces his gospel, Matthew and Mark have already produced theirs. So he knows of that, and likely others have made some kind of attempt as well. But inspired uh, Gospels are already in place, Matthew and Mark. But he does something different. Matthew and Mark, and then later John, will make some theological decisions of where they put things. Luke says, no, I'm writing a chronological event. I've talked to the primary sources. I have been to the eyewitnesses. I have talked to them personally, and I have, for you, Theophilus, the things you've taught about Jesus, I have put them in order so you can know for certain the things you've been taught. He is giving a historical account. This is history. That's why it starts the way that it does. That's why it starts the way that it does. Look at Luke chapter 2 with me and verse 1. You know, it is an astonishing. I mean, if you were writing about the birth of Jesus, would you use seven verses? I mean, I could come up with an eighth grade essay that would go on and on. I could pad it. I could really pad it. I'm talking about the birth of Jesus. But he does the actual birth of Jesus in seven verses. Astonishingly economic in the number of words. But astonishingly and astoundingly Rich and deep in its content. Look with me, if you would, the way he opens it up in Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from... So don't miss that. In those days, he has just... Now watch. He has just put the birth of Christ as a historical event. Not a mythological wish. Not a fabled desire. Not a created story, but he has put it in time and history with real people, real places, real events that he has researched. And once this is produced between 62 and 66 A.D. and its companion Gospels, Matthew and Mark, you could go check him out. These are real events, real people. In those days, here's a real person, a, a, here's a real event, a decree, an edict went out 
from from a real person, Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be registered. That is, the Roman world, the civilized world, was going to be registered as a census. An administrative census was put in place for multiple purposes by Caesar Augustus. That's something that's checkable. This was the first registration. It was not only a registration. It was the first of a number of planned registrations that would take place afterwards. And by the way, we know that, that it was a it was a strategy, an administrative strategy for finance, military, financial, economic and taxation reasons that would be repeated every 14 years. The next time it's done in Acts chapter five, it will cause a Jewish rebellion and that's recorded for you in Acts chapter five the, uh, when it's rec- when it is applied the second time. But the first time, that's not what's noteworthy. There's no rebellion. Something else happens. Here's what happens. This first registration um, when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Quirinius is a real person who two different times was the military and political governor of the region called Syria in which Judea and Jerusalem and Bethlehem was found. And all went to so there was a red decree for all to be registered. Well, guess what? All went to be registered. But specifically, now he goes from the general to the particular. All went to be registered where each one went to his own town. Well, now we get a case study of one that went to his hometown. His name was Joseph. And Joseph also went up from Galilee. That's a real region. And from the town of Nazareth. That's a real town in that real region. And Joseph is a real man. And then he leaves there to go to Judea. He goes from the region of Galilee to the region of Judea. And when he gets to Judea, he goes to the city of David. He left the city of Nazareth in Galilee, went to the city of Bethlehem, uh, the city of David in Judea. And that city of David is called Bethlehem. Why did he do that? Because that was his ancestral home. He was of the house and lineage of David. Now, you know that because when the gospel of Luke came out, the gospel of Matthew was already out. And in the third chapter is the lineage and is the genealogy of Joseph. Then now Luke in the next uh, in the following chapters is going to give us the genealogy of Mary, who also is from Bethlehem through her lineage. She also is of the tribe of Judah. She also is of the line of David. So he goes uh, to that place because he is of the house and lineage of David to be registered. Now, notice he doesn't make the trip by himself. He could have. Mary did not have to go, but he brought Mary. Mary went with him and she is his betrothed wife, not just wife, because they haven't finished all the steps. There's three steps. There is betrothal, then ceremony. And then consummation. They have not arrived at consummation. Why? Because she had conceived as a virgin betrothed to Joseph and Joseph had been instructed to keep her a virgin. Thus, while there is a legal relationship, don't think of betrothal like an engagement. That's the way a lot of people think of it. It's more than that. In fact, if you break this betrothal, you have to actually get an approved divorce. 
as Joseph considered the possibility of doing. If you'll remember back in Matthew, and then he was informed that she has not been unfaithful. This is of the Holy Spirit. And he was informed that he was not only to remain her betrothed, he was to keep her as his wife, but not to um, but not to have intimacy He was to keep her as a virgin. So she is now with him, this virgin who is with child. And while they were there, where? Real place, Bethlehem. While they were there, the time when, within the context of coming to be registered for the taxation and the census, when the time came, at, simultaneous with that time, for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn. Note the historical accuracy. It's not Joseph's firstborn. The next child will be Joseph's firstborn. This is Mary's firstborn. Also note the, the affirmation that you find in ten other passages of the Gospels that Mary and, jo- and Joseph had other children. Brother, Jesus had brothers and sisters. They would come and the next one would be Joseph's firstborn. Joseph is not, um, Jesus is not the firstborn of Joseph because Joseph is his adopted father. But she, he, he is the firstborn of Mary, and she gave birth, so note the historical accuracy, and she wrapped him in swaddling cloths. It's interesting they bring that out, because while swaddling cloths may have various benefits, um, it didn't have the benefit intended. It was an, it was an act of, of medical ignorance. The baby came out having been in the womb and all curled up. And the thought of the day medically was you had to straighten the baby out with tightly bound cloths, lest the bones, uh, let the bones be settled in a curved place. So the notion was you had to straighten them out with the swaddling cloths and keep him as such for a period of time, lest he be curved in his stature. And that was the notion. So it was done out of, now it may have had other benefits, so don't send me all the emails. I know it had other benefits. But it was out of a medical ignorance that it was done. But Jesus is born in a real time in which they didn't have all of the medical knowledge we have today. It was available, but they hadn't discovered it yet. And so he, he received treatment that would have been medically ignorant, but will serve another purpose according to the providences of God. So he's wrapped in, wrapped in swaddling cloths, then he's laid in a manger, meaning a cattle trough. And that cattle trough is found in that manger that they are in because there was no place in the inn. Again, it's a historical word, katalama. And the katalama, the katalama was, in fact, when y'all go through the drive through nativity, you'll see we put the name there. Why? Because there's two names for an inn. One is a commercial inn. The other was a hospitality inn. In other words, people would have, we call it today, guest room. They, call, they would have called it then the upper room. That's what they would have called it. In other words, when you'd build a house side of the hill, you would put the stable, you'd build the house over a cave. You'd hollow out the cave. And so the animals would be put there. You could see beneficial in the winter, uh, the animal heat that would rise. Plus nearby where you need to gather eggs or whatever that you need to do or you need to get to your animal quickly. So they were underneath the house. The house was built for everyone to live in. And then the very special place where the fresh air would blow. That would be the open room at the top. The upper room would be there. 
Well, uh, Mary and Joseph arrive, and uh, I believe they're actually probably going to one of their relatives, and the place is filled up for the census, and there's no room uh, for, for them. Now, a lot of people, this is their moment they're going to preach against capitalism. Uh, can you believe it, that capitalistic innkeeper? How horrible is he to put this pregnant teenage girl down in a stable? Why would he do that? I know he's just trying to make money. He's scared to death for a welfare case or something. Well, folks, that's just not accurate. I actually get a little upset at this moment, but I'm not upset at the innkeeper because I think I think even if it is a an actual commercial inn, he's already got a contract. Somebody's already rented the room. I tell you whom I'm upset at the oaf that kept the room and didn't give it to the teenage pregnant woman. That's the one I'm upset at because I know sitting on a bus, number two bus in Charlotte, North Carolina, to go downtown to the square to go see a movie. My daddy and mother taught me that if a woman gets on and there's not a seat, you get up and give it to her. And if you don't, you're going to not like the consequences. And if a pregnant young girl got on with no place to sit and I kept my seat, I would have probably lost my life when I got home, more than likely. That's what would have happened. That's the guy I'm upset with. Why didn't you give up your room for crying out loud? Well, one reason is the sovereignty of God is going to use that because the whole point of this king who bears the scepter of Judah is that he will come and humble himself to be found in appearance as a man, to be born and laid not in a royal bassinet, but in a cattle trough that lightly was car- likely was carved out of the side of that cave wall that had been created for a stable. And there, the king of kings, in a forgotten royal line, is born, who is king of all kings, laid in the trough. No royal robe misguided linen cloths are wrapping him around. That's the historical event. Real time in history. There's a real emperor. There's a real edict. There's a real event. This isn't fable. It doesn't start once upon a time. It doesn't start in a land far away. In those days. And here is the emperor, a real emperor. He likely, and I don't think I'm alone in my amateur historian role of life. uh, I think very clearly he is the greatest emperor out of all the emperors of Rome. It's interesting how he got there. He is the second Caesar. The first Caesar's name was. Come on. You're scared to say, aren't you? Julius Caesar. And Julius Caesar had no male heir. And Julius Caesar met his demise with an assassination on the floor of the Senate. And when he died, they went and opened his will. And he had in his will appointed his grand nephew, his sister's son's son. He appointed his grand nephew. Gaius Octavius, Octavian in your history books. He appointed Gaius Octavius to be his son and heir to the throne. 
you now know him as Caesar Augustus, because the Senate so loved him, calling him a benevolent Caesar. They so loved him that they said there has been no other Caesar like him or will there ever be one of deity proportions. He is the supreme majesty. Can you imagine what that must sound like to a, 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 an observing Jew at that time? He is the supreme majesty, Augustus, Caesar Augustus. Well, Caesar Augustus, he said, you know, I need to have myself a male heir. So he married this woman, this woman by the name of it was kind of a political marriage, Scarbini. But she could she did not bear him a male son, but she did bear him a female daughter, her name. And he named her for Julius Caesar. He called her Julia, but she didn't come up with a son. So he just got rid of her. He got rid of her. And then he went and he uh, got his love of his life, he said, was Livia. And he got her. But she never gave a male son. So here is this emperor who is known as benevolent. Have you all ever heard of Pax Romana? The peace of Rome that covered the civilized world. That was from Augustus, Caesar Augustus, Octavius. He is the one that established the peace of Rome. Harry, why was that such a big deal? Well, how do you, why do you think Joseph could go with a pregnant woman and not worry about getting robbed? How could you go across national boundaries? Because Rome, under Octavius, had created, we use the phrase, Law and order. He even made adultery a crime. He um, he created the road systems. Think that's going to be helpful in fulfilling the Great Commission to get the gospel around the whole world. And and a couple of decades later, Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, the road system. And then something else he did. He declared the nations we conquer can keep their customs and their religion. Thus, we got something from that in our country, the free practice of religion. Now, do you think that mattered? After Jesus is born, he's going to be what? He's going to be circumcised. And they were free to practice it. Then 40 days, then 40 days, he's going to be brought and presented and Mary is going to be cleansed and they're going to present the firstborn offerings. Here is this free practice of religion that is established under the rule of this Caesar Augustus, who also has given an edict that then brings Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. And as they come to be registered Joseph brings Mary. He didn't have to. This is kind of like when you come back into the United States and you give the card that represents you and your family. He could have done that, but he didn't. Why didn't he? Well, the text tells you. Luke says he brought her with him 90 mile journey up the ascents all the way to the Mount Zion to the little suburb outside of Jerusalem called um, called Bethlehem. And he does it because she was with child. Now, you may be sitting there like me and think that's not a reason to take her. That's a reason to leave her. I mean, how many times when, you know, we had three children and and we were getting close and I had to go somewhere and said, Cindy, you want to go with? Well, maybe you shouldn't because we're getting close. Maybe you shouldn't. But that's not what he did. So why is it? 
He didn't see with child as a reason to leave her, but as a reason to bring her. Why did why would that be? I'm going to suggest something to you. I now confess. Biblically informed speculation, but still speculation. I think he brought her because this is the same Joseph when he thought she had been unfaithful. He knew being a righteous man, he had to divorce her, but he wanted to do so. Does anyone remember how? Quietly. Privately. He did not want to expose her. Well, then once he gets the information of the miraculous conception and uh, once he gets that information, he now he now, of course, sets about obedience to keep her and then to keep her a virgin until she would deliver. And then they would continue and fulfill uh, what would take place as the betrothed into consummation after that. But now but now that's where that's where he finds himself with her and this compassionate man. I believe takes her with him because he didn't want to leave her alone because of the gossip and slander in that small town. And he didn't want her to be alone with it. Secondly, there's no evidence of any family in Nazareth. Where would most of their related family be back in Bethlehem? So we don't know. It's speculation, but I don't know of anyone. He doesn't have any other children he could leave her with. There's no evidence of anyone else to leave her with that we know of for sure. You've got relatives, Elizabeth, back in Judea, back toward Jerusalem, but we don't know of anyone. And thirdly, and this is the big one, she's going to give birth to their first child. He knows all that they've been through. He knows what this is about. And I believe he wants to be with her. Remember, men, that's our vow as husbands. Honor and respect your wife. Live with her in an honorable way. And he wants to be with her, the one who is with child, when she delivers. So he brings her. Now, I don't know whether he took her on a donkey or not. We don't have that information. Now, yes, you will see a donkey in the, in the drive through nativity. But we don't know for sure. But I'm sure this man that wants to be with her and took care of her got her there the best way that he could. And while he's there, she now delivers this child. And so Jesus comes into this world. So there is a real emperor. There is a real edict. There is a real environment, Bethlehem, where they arrive. And there is a real event that takes place. And Jesus comes into this world, born in that stable, laid in a stone trough, wrapped in swaddling cloths with the medical wisdom of the day, and then set aside. So what is it that we would get and walk away with, with King Caesar Augustus, Octavius Gaius, looming over us in this account. Well, here's what I would share with you. The birth of Jesus of Nazareth, that is the Christ, is real history. But real history is really 
his story. The story of a sovereign God at work in and through men and women and the affairs of this world is gloriously and wonderfully at work. So. Let me try to put it this way. This was produced. This gospel was produced to accompany two other gospels, at least Matthew and Mark. There may have been other attempts that are not inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it's produced. And we know it was available from 60 uh, up to 64, 65 A.D. We know it was available. That means people who would have been alive at the time of the birth of Jesus are still living. That means they could have received what Luke wrote and they could have said, wow, let me go check this. Let me go talk to some of the people he researched. And I have no doubt he researched. Why in the world? I mean, let me give you one instance. Do you see how many times it says Mary pondered these things in her heart? How would he know that? You see, I think Luke wrote Luke after the second missionary journey of Paul, when he was arrested in Jerusalem and imprisoned where Caesarea by the sea. What is Caesarea by the sea? It's a port city made by Herod the Great and given to Caesar Augustus. In that place, years later, Paul is arrested. In that place, Luke, who will be his companion in the Roman imprisonments, is with him there. But I believe he goes out and does some research. I believe he talked to Mary, who would have been under the care of the cousin of Jesus, John. I believe that he, 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 went, he said he went to eyewitnesses. Yes, disciples have written gospel accounts, but I have also gone to eyewitnesses. And I have been doing this, quote, for some time in research. And now I put it together in order so that you can be certain. And then he comes up with only phrases that would come from heaven. Having talked to somebody, Mary pondered these things. She treasured these things. But if you had been alive when this was produced and it was handed to you, you could go down to Bethlehem and say, hey, did this happen? Did this happen? And boy, I can tell you what might have happened in Bethlehem. There have been some people. Oh, yeah. Cause quite a stir, but you know, this is Bethlehem. We're small, but hey, we're wiry. I'm telling you, there's some stuff that goes on here. Yeah, we may be small, but can I tell you about at Bethlehem when there was a woman and her husband, because of a famine, left and went to Moab. The next thing we know, because of the famine there, they're back here, but there, but she comes back without her husband, without her two sons, and when she comes back, all she's got is one daughter-in-law named Ruth. And by the way, and I quote, all the women in Bethlehem was stirred up when Naomi and Ruth showed up. And boy, you wouldn't believe what happened next. In the field of Boaz, she and Boaz got together and they got married. And then you know who comes next. Well, we got an Obed. We got a Jesse. And then we get a David. Yeah, things have happened here. 
Speaking of David, did you know that Samuel, the prophet, came to Bethlehem and he went to Jesse and said, line up your boys. And he lined up his boys and he looked fine young men, but one's missing. Oh, he's the little one. He's out as a shepherd boy in the fields. Go bring him in. And he comes in. He'll be king. And from him will come the king of kings. And he will summon shepherds from that field of Bethlehem again many, many years later. That's what has happened. You could check those things out in Bethlehem and then would go, oh, yeah, it was stirred up when Mary and Joseph came back home to register and she delivered. Shepherds are coming. Angels appeared. You wouldn't believe all the things that happened. You could go check it out. Real people, real history, real events. You could go up to Rome. Was there does there was there an emperor named Augustus? Was there an emperor named Gaius Octavius? Was he Augustus? What did he give an edict of registration where every 14 years it would be a census would be taken for military, economic and financial purposes? You could have checked that out. You could have checked out Nazareth. Did Jesus, did Mary and Joseph leave Nazareth to go down to Bethlehem? And then later, did they come back? Real people. This is not once upon a time. In those days, these real people, these real events really occurred. And a sovereign God is ruling and reigning. It's his story. Now, does that mean... That Octavius is a pawn? Or is he a king? Is Caesar Augustus a pawn? Or is he a king? Is he a pawn where God is moving him around, pulling the strings so that he says this edict that will help fulfill 60 plus prophecies of the Old Testament and a very specific one in Micah 5 2? Born in Bethlehem will be the ruler, the king of kings. You may be surprised at my answer. Because most of you know one of my dear loves is the sovereignty of God. But let me tell you. Caesar Augustus is no pawn. He is a king. God appointed him. God allowed him. God sustained him in his kingship, even with his blasphemous name. And God's purposes are being accomplished through him. And you don't have to affirm the sovereignty of God by diminishing the dignity of people or their positions. Our God is not just king of pawns. He's king of kings. And yes, he had much power. He said, all the world be taxed, all the world shows up. And Joseph comes, because Joseph knows what you and I need to know. While I may not vote for that guy, God's put him there. And as long as he doesn't make me transgress the worship of my God and obedience to his word, I'll honor him. I'll pay tax to whom tax is due, honor to whom honor is due, and respect to whom respect is due. Mary, let's go. We're going to Bethlehem. He knows that God is king.
king of kings, like Herod, like Caesar Augustus. And he is free to act as he ought under a sovereign God with confidence that God will accomplish his purposes in his time, in his way, through real people really acting. Joseph is a real man making a real decision about him. I going to leave Mary here or bring her. He brings her and the sovereign God is at work through him really making a husband decision. And a sovereign God is really at work with a real king, likely the greatest Caesar ever in the Roman Empire. With all of his power, he's not only going to use his road system, he's not only going to use Pax Romana, he's going to use a tax that is given and a census that's established to get the scriptures fulfilled in Bethlehem in a real time, in a real place for his glory. To bring forth in humility the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who would save us from our sins. He has accomplished that. And you can affirm it. You can look at it. It's in history. It's not once upon a time a Christian fable. It's in those days. And when he begins, I don't have time, but when he begins his ministry, next chapter, chapter 3, what does it say? In the 15th year, you got a new governor, Pontius Pilate. You got a new Caesar. Tiberius. Who is Tiberius? The son of Julia, the daughter of Octavian. He never had a son. So his grandson became the Caesar in the days of Jesus. And a grandson of Herod the Great will build a city for him. It's called Caesarea Philippi. And he will have a city built for himself on the Sea of Galilee. It's called Tiberias. These are real people. Real space and time. Real history. And we have a real Savior. God has come in the flesh. We have looked at Caesar Augustus. And he really acted as a king. But there's a king above all kings. Man proposes. But God disposes. Man plans his way. God directs the steps. The heart, not a pawn. The heart of a king is in the hands of the Lord. And he turns it wheresoever he wishes. As he turns the rivers to the sea. This is a real king. But there is a king of kings. Who uses husbands. And wives. And fathers. And mothers. And kings. To accomplish his story. And he does so gloriously. He doesn't need to diminish anyone. For he is sovereign over everyone. That's you, me. And there's a day we'll stand before him. And the only way in that day you and I can stand before him is to have surrendered in this day to the one he sent for us in time and space and history. There's the real supreme majesty. There is Jesus Augustus. The incomparable God 
of glory and grace. The one in a, the one in a stall was bound. Will 33 years later be bound to a cross to save us from our sins. The one who is wrapped in linen will be laid in a tomb wrapped in linen cloths. The one who in his birth was found in a stone hollowed out cave will be buried in one. The one who was laid in a hollowed out stone trough will in a stone tomb be laid in another trough. But the God of history will speak and no grave will hold him. On the third day he arose, he ascended. And this God who has sovereignly shown himself in history tells you the next event in history. He is coming again. And he warns you, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And you don't have to. Today, you can surrender to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who died on that cross and rose again that you and I can have life everlasting. Real history in those days. Not once upon a time. Real history. I pray in this day, this King is yours. You come. You say, Pastor, I have. Then you go for him to bring others to him who came for them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the moments we could spend in your word. Thank you so much for the Lord Jesus, this glorious King of Kings. 2,000 years ago, I'm sure it looked, even to the line of the King, Joseph and Mary, it looked as if the scepter had left Judah. But in the moment of greatest darkness, under a king who proclaims supremacy with his name, the king of kings comes forth, using his very edict to fulfill the word and be humbled to redeem us from our sins. Now, if we are in a moment here, this is a real day in December. This is a real moment in history. I pray that everyone under the sound of my voice, if not before at this moment, will surrender to Christ as Lord and Savior, who surrendered his privileges, not his deity, but his privileges, to come and be humbled. This majestic one. Would you, Father, bring us to him who humbled himself for us, that we might at the right time be exalted by him, in him, and for him. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader. 
Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.